morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. For our study this morning, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about the rapture. <laughs> you know, most Christians today view the rapture as describing an escape from the troubles of this world. And I can remember as a young Christian, yeah, you, you know, when things were going good, no Lord, not today. You know, hold off. But when the things were bad and you were hurting or things were going wrong, today would be a good day, Lord. <laughs> Beam me up, you know, get out, get me out of this world. And, you know, so many Christians believe that one day soon, and it's always soon. It was soon 2,000 years ago, it's still soon today. Something's wrong there, people, when it can always be soon. But they say someday soon, Yeshua is going to physically appear in the sky. It's got to be a clear day, I guess. And immediately all the dead are going to be resurrected and meet Him, and the living Christians are going to be caught up in the clouds with them to meet Christ in the air. They believe that Christians will physically be raptured off the planet. I'm sure you've seen the pictures, you know. The cars are crashing, the planes are crashing, and everybody's just, you know, shooting up into the sky. Except, you know, uh, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, but those people are clothed, but usually you see a picture and there's the clothes are left behind, you know. So, <laughs> last month, another movie came out, another Left Behind movie. This one's starring Nicolas Cage. They got a bigger name, you know, to play in this one. Came out in theaters across the country. And this film is based on the popular book series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. This movie represents a severe misinterpretation of what the Bible has to say about the topic. But here's the sad thing. The movie will influence the theology of more Christians than the Bible will. Because it's a lot easier to just go sit down in a movie and watch it than read your Bible and try to figure out what the Bible has to say. And here's that picture, you know, that the clothes are there, the person's gone, you know. But the people in, going up into the sky were clothes, so I'm not sure which way it is. The theology's not totally worked out on this yet, okay? Clothes or no clothes, we don't know, alright? But are you aware that this whole rapture idea of being caught up, sucked up into the sky is something new? It's a new teaching to the church. Rapture-based theology has only been around for the past couple hundred years and predominantly in America. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright refers to it as an American obsession. And he notes that few Christians in the U.K. hold any sort of belief in it. And that's true. I know a guy over in the UK, he says they just don't have any time for that over here. Alright? The origins of this whole rapture theology lie in 1830 in Scotland, where a 15-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald claimed to see a vision of a two-stage return of Yeshua. So we got a 15-year-old girl who has a vision, and let's build a theology on that. Alright? Then John Nelson Darby, you all heard of Darby, I hope, a British evangelist, he's the founder of the Plymouth Brethren. He took McDonald's vision and he created an entire system based off it, which Yeshua returns not once, as Christians have always believed, but twice. He comes and he goes, he comes again. Through various mission trips to the U.S. in the late 19th century, the notion of a rapture found itself appealing to American Christians who were going through the atrocities of the Civil War. 
And by all measure, you know, it looked like Armageddon to them at that time. I mean, nation rising against nation, brother against brother, with more than a half a million dead. Who wouldn't find a let's get out of here theology attractive? This mindset was exasperated with World War One, and along with that came the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, which was handed out to soldiers in the trenches. All talking about this rapture, this escape, and you know, that sounded really good at that time. Two other events correspond to the promotion of this rapture idea in America. The conversion of Dwight L. Moody to the eschatological system. He later founded Moody Bible Institute and a major radio program he had, which became very big in the promotion of this rapture theology. And then we have the establishment of a theological institute known as Dallas Theological Institute that really was pushing this dispensational idea. During the 20th century, the rapture, the physical rapture view of the church became the dominant eschatological view in America. Now let's look at what the Bible has to say about this. The main text that people would go to to try to support this idea of a physical rapture would be the passage in Thessalonians 4 that David read earlier. So let's look at that and try to figure out how they get this and what it really is saying. Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Yeshua. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, the first question we need to ask here is, who is the you that Paul's writing to? But we do not want you to be uninformed. So that you will not grieve. Who's the you? Us? No. Okay, he's writing to the Thessalonians. Alright? I don't think anybody wants to argue at that point, right? I mean, it's in the book, to the Thessalonians. But as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, we have to keep in mind the principle of audience relevance. What did the original audience understand this to mean? He is writing this book to real people... In real time, I often tell Christians, the Bible is not written for us. or The Bible is not written to us, it is written for us. Now, a lot of Christians want to argue that. People go crazy when you say, what do you mean it's not written to us? I said, what book is written to you? What book is for you? Is there a book to the, you know, Chesapeakeans in the, you know, in the first century or whatever? You know, we don't have that book. If you think the Bible's written to you, then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna come up with all kinds of different things. First of all, let me ask you this. How could it be written to us if it was written 2,000 years ago? I mean, we weren't kind of around at that time, you know? So how was it written to us? When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he was writing to Thessalonian Christians who lived in the first century. We need to understand this. As you read the scripture, you need to keep that in mind. Context. 
If we're going to understand what he's saying, we've got to understand who he's writing to. All right, he says in verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. So he's talking about those who are asleep and talking about hope here. So the first thing we got to want to understand is who is sleeping? Who is he talking about that's sleeping? And it need to, I think in order to understand it, we need to understand what he means by hope. What was the hope that the Thessalonian believers had that the unsaved did not have? Well, the hope of Israel is clearly the resurrection. And people, this passage is not about people being sucked off the planet into the sky. This passage is about resurrection. That's what this is about. And that was the hope of Israel. Let's look at a few scriptures. Acts 24, 15, Paul says, Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, what was the hope? That there shall certainly be a resurrection. That was the hope. We hope that there will be a resurrection. Acts 26, 6-8 says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. That's in reference to Israel. Israel had a hope because they had promises. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope. Now, I guess you, by the twelve tribes you understand he's talking about Israel there. Hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Why is that so hard to understand? So he's talking about hope, and again, he ties it to the resurrection. That was their hope. Someday, they would be reunited with God. Hosea talks about this. Hosea 13, 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? That is resurrection. He's going to take them out of Sheol. He's going to bring them into His presence. He says, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. So the hope that Paul's talking about to the Thessalonians is the hope of resurrection. Now, what exactly did they understand about the resurrection? Because you say resurrection, you get all kinds of different views from people what that means. The traditional view that is held by most of the church is that when a believer dies, their body goes into the grave, their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And they're in this disembodied state awaiting the resurrection at the end of time. Then at the end of time, the Lord returns, resurrects all the dead, decayed bodies, pulls them out of the ground, puts them all back together, changes them, once they're all back together the way they used to be, He changes them into a new, resurrected, spiritual bodies, and they'll be like Christ forever. One of the major problems with this view is that Paul taught that the resurrection was going to happen really soon. In his day. Look what Paul said. We already read this, but look at it in Young's. David read from Young's this morning. Acts 24.15 Having hope toward God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be, it's the word mellow, there's about to be a rising again of the dead. Paul says it's, it's about to happen. Now that was 2,000 years ago. It was about to happen in Paul's day. So what is the resurrection? The resurrection is Yahweh removing the old covenant saints, the dead saints, out of Sheol and taking them into heaven into His presence. See, prior to Yeshua's messianic work, nobody went to heaven. 
John 3.13 says, And no one hath gone up to heaven, except he who out of the heaven came down, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So prior to Yeshua's messianic work, all who died went to a holding place of the dead and waited for the atoning work until the resurrection would take place. See, they couldn't go into God's presence because sin hadn't been atoned for yet. Once Christ paid, they were resurrected. They were taken into His presence. So to be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of Yahweh is what the Bible calls resurrection. It has nothing to do with people coming out of graves. It has to do with their spirit going into the presence of Yahweh. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Yeshua. So who are those who sleep in Yeshua that Paul speaks of here? They are the dead saints. They are the old covenant saints that went to Sheol. And Paul assures the Thessalonians that when Christ returned, He would rescue those old covenant saints from the grave. Because they're there and they're thinking, you know, okay, when the Lord returns, we're going to be with them, but what about our dead loved ones? What happens to them? He says, don't worry. He'll get them too. They'll be taken into His presence. So it appears as though the Thessalonians were concerned for their departed brethren. So Paul reassures them in this text that don't worry, they'll rise with Christ at the parousia. Now this is directed very specifically towards the first century Thessalonians. and We've got to understand that. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We who are alive and remain. Those are time statements. We. We, the people he's writing to. Him and his audience. We. We're going to be alive. We're going to remain till he comes. Now, if he hasn't come yet, something's wrong. All right? Because they were expecting the return in their lifetime. You know, this thought is very clear throughout this whole book. Both the books of Thessalonians. Let's look at a few places. First Thessalonians 1.10. He says, And to wait for His Son from heaven. So He's writing to them. He said, We're going to wait for His Son, whom He raised from the dead. That is Yeshua who rescues us, Paul and his readers, from the wrath to come. So we're waiting for His Son from heaven. He's going to rescue us. 2.19 For who is our hope and joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? First century Thessalonians. You in the presence of our Lord Yeshua is coming. So they had this idea, hey, He's coming in our lifetime. 3.13 So that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua with all His saints. Again, they just all through the book. Look at 5.23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord. Now if He hasn't come yet, their body has not been preserved blameless. Okay? It's dust. It's gone. It's nothing left. Alright? So Paul and the Thessalonians were clearly expecting to see this return of Christ in their lifetime. Notice also, this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 And it says, For after all, it is only just 
for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Alright? So for the Thessalonians, someone was persecuting them. It was the Jews. Alright? They're persecuting the Thessalonians because they're believers. So he says that God is going to repay them. And, watch, to give relief to you. How's he going to give them the relief? He says, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Yeshua will be revealed from heaven. When did they get relief? At the second coming. There will be relief. Why? Because he's going to make it very clear that the Jews have no part anymore when he destroys Jerusalem, when he wipes out the temple, puts an end to the sacrifices, he makes it very clear. He says, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. The Thessalonian believers of the first century will be given rest from their enemies when the Lord returned in the second coming. Now, if the second coming did not happen in their lifetime, the Lord gave them false hope. As a matter of fact, He deceived them. I remember the first time I ever taught on predators, and my very first preterist message, had a couple in the back of the church stand up and, you know, tell me I was of the devil and, you know, all for even preaching this stuff. And I said to them, you know, why, how come all these time statements are in the Bible? And, and it seems like he wanted them to understand it was soon. And they said, these, and they were a married couple, they were both lawyers. And they said, we think the Lord said, he wanted every generation to think he was coming soon so they would keep them right. And I thought, so basically he knew he wasn't coming, but he told me he was just to trick them. Are you comfortable with that? I wasn't comfortable with that. I mean, the Lord says, yeah, I'm coming soon. <laughs> Not really, but you know. No, that doesn't fit at all, you know. And some people just can't understand, you know, simple things about time statements. Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that Christ would return in their lifetime and those who are alive at the time would not go into God's presence ahead of the dead saints. Young's literal translation, again, puts it this way. For this to you we say in the word of the Lord, that we who are living, ones he's writing to, Paul and those saints, who do not remain over at the parousy of the Lord may not precede those asleep. In other words, don't worry. Your dead loved ones, they're going to get to go first. He's talking to them. You, he says. We, all of them together, will remain over to the presence. The presence there is a parousia, the coming of the Lord. Alright, let's move to our next verse. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The word descend here was commonly used of the priest's descent out of the temple to announce that atonement had been made. And that's exactly what's happening when the Lord comes. Atonement has been made, and that's why now people can go into the presence of the Lord. If we are to rightly interpret the Word of God, We need to apply the rules of hermeneutics. And the sad thing is most of churchianity doesn't even know there are hermeneutics. They don't know there are any rules. The primary rule of hermeneutics is what? All right. 
It's called the analogy of faith. And what it means is Scripture interprets Scripture. Alright? And that means no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is taught somewhere else. So, here's the key, people. you got to know beginning to end. <laughs> okay? There's some work involved. So, you can understand, is that in conflict with anything else? Because Scripture doesn't conflict itself. It's, an, it's analogous. Alright? Now, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that this is apocalyptic language. Speaking of judgment. That's our problem today. We jump into the New Testament, we read things, we say, I know what this means. And I say, no, you don't know what it means. Because if you haven't read the first three quarters of the book where that language is developed, you can't get to the last quarter and think you know what it means. It's apocalyptic. And those people at the time of that writing understood it to be that. If we compare our text to a parallel text of Matthew 24, I think it helps us understand the meaning. Matthew 24.30 says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I've recently read, no kidding, uh, that some guy was thinking, as long as it was a clear day, he knew the Lord wasn't coming. There was no clouds. I thought, wow, that's called a literalist there, all right? Well, does this verse sound familiar? It should, because it's parallel to the text in Thessalonians. Yeshua spoke these words in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew 24. And He said their generation would see all these things. Matthew 24, 34 says, Truly I say to you, this generation. Now people today will say, well, that means the generation that's alive when He comes. No. He didn't say that generation. He didn't use the far demonstrative. He uses the near demonstrative. This generation. The one he's speaking to will not pass away until all these things take place. All the things he's just talked about in the text of Matthew. One of them being the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, here's what we have to understand. In biblical language, clouds are symbolic of God's wrath, of God's judgment on his enemies. David said the Lord delivered him from his enemies while descending on clouds. In Psalm 18, 3-15. You think he saw this image of God with a cloud wrapped around his feet like he was surfing or something? Riding in on a cloud? This is a great text. One that you all need to be familiar with. You all need to memorize. Because when you talk about this cloud coming, this is where we have to go. we got to go back to Isaiah. Watch what it says. The oracle concerning Egypt. Alright, so he's talking about Egypt here. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Don't get a visible image there, because that's not what he's looking for, okay? He's about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. So this is talking about Yahweh's coming to judge Egypt. Now, I don't think they saw an image of whatever. You know, riding on a cloud, moving into Egypt. See, we know, because we've read chapter 20, that Yahweh is talking about Assyrians. It was Assyria who came and attacked and destroyed Egypt. But Yahweh says, they're gonna, idols will tremble at my presence. Yahweh's riding a cloud, it says. It says they'll tremble at his presence. Yahweh came to Egypt, listen, 
but he didn't physically come. Yahweh is a spirit. Alright? So how did he come to Egypt? He came in judgment. He used the Assyrians to do it, but he says, I am there in that judgment. I'm the one doing it. His presence was made known in judgment. Now, if you take what you understand from this text and go into the New Testament and apply it there, when it talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and him coming in clouds in Matthew 24, he's talking again about judgment. Not on Egypt this time, but on Jerusalem. A comparison between 1 Thessalonians 4 and chapter 5 and Matthew 24 is fascinating. As you keep in mind that Yeshua uses apocalyptic language in Matthew 24, you can't expect the same language to be literal in 1 Thessalonians. See, some people look at Matthew 24 and they say, that's clearly talking about the coming of the Lord. But Thessalonians is talking about the rapture of the church. Well, wait, it's the exact same language saying two different things? That would be a little bit confusing, wouldn't it? See, those who believe the coming in Matthew refers to spiritual events surrounding Jerusalem's fall would insist that you not literalize the clouds, the angels, the trumpets. Well, if they're not literal in Matthew, guess what? They're not literal in Thessalonians either. Because Matthew is the source of the language in Thessalonians. Look at a few of these. I'm going to run through these comparisons. But in both texts, here's what you see. Christ Himself returns. Matthew 24 says that. 1 Thessalonians says that. He returns from heaven. Both texts. He returns with a shout. Both texts. He returns accompanied by angels. He returns with the trumpet of God. He returns and believers are gathered. He returns in the clouds. Both texts. He returns at a time unknown. He's going to come like a thief. Both texts. Unbelievers are unaware of the impending judgment. Both texts. Judgment comes as travail upon an unexpected mother. Both texts. Believers are warned to watch. Both texts. And warning against drunkenness. In other words, be sober, be ready, be on the alert for this to happen. In Matthew 24, Yeshua predicted His coming to gather together His saints in that generation. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul spoke of the same coming of the Lord to gather the saints. Now here's a question. How many comings of the Lord with angels in fire, in power, and glory to gather the saints are there in the New Testament? Just one, right? There's not a whole bunch of them. There's just one. The conclusion is inescapable. 1 Thessalonians 4 is dealing with exactly the same coming, the same judgment, and the same gathering as Matthew 24. He says, For the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about Christ coming in judgment on Jerusalem. And when this happens, the old covenant saints were raised out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord. See, to be in the Lord's presence is life. And now they have life eternal. They are in His presence. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. This is the verse that the physical rapture theory comes from. So let's look at it and see if it's talking about being sucked up off the planet, or maybe there's some other meaning here. Let's start with the first word, then. Alright, he ends verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise. Okay, those are the ones in Sheol, be taken out of Sheol in the presence of the Lord. Then. Now, Interesting thing here, 
This is the Greek word epeta. Normally, when a sequence of events is described, the simple word eta then is used. Eta is best translated as at that time or next. Eta, <coughs> excuse me, is used to indicate an immediate sequence. For example, we see eta used here in John 19. When Yeshua then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then, Eta, he said to the disciples. In other words, he says the one, he says it right to this, an immediate sequence here, one after the other. Alright? But, in our text, the Greek word is not Eta, it's Epeta, which is essentially the same Greek word with the Epi prefix. And this has the effect of affixing the word after to the word then. And the best translation becomes after then, or after that, or after that time, and thereby doesn't necessarily mean right after. If you look up the different uses of epeta, you find sometimes it refers to three years later, sometimes it refers to 14 years later, sometimes it refers to a longer time. So it's something after that time. Alright? Now some say that epeta means that the living would be caught up to meet the Lord at a later time. Alright, so they see, verse 16, the dead in Christ rise, that's at the coming of Christ, then later, some other time, we who are alive will remain, will be caught up. And the most predominant view here is, what it's talking about is at your death. When you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Alright? I used to hold this view. So I know the view, I know what they teach. I used to hold it. I don't hold it anymore. And here, let me tell you why. Change my mind for two reasons. Number one, epeta does not always mean after that time. Epeta is used 16 times in the New Testament. Twelve of them clearly have the idea of after that time. Four of them do not. There's four uses in the New Testament of epeta that don't at all mean later, after that time. For example, let's look at them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then epeta, miracles, then epeta, gifts. Now, did the Lord give some gifts and then wait a whole long time and say, oh, let me give some more. They don't have enough gifts. Let me give them some. No, they gave them all the gifts. They all received the gifts at the same. There wasn't a delay. There's not a three-year, 14-year, whatever delay here in get, receiving the gifts. All right, James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then Epeta, peaceful. So does the wisdom have to be pure for a while, and then, then if after it's pure for a while, you get peaceable? Is there a delay here? That doesn't fit at all in this text. One more, Hebrews. Those are the three, and then, the, then our text, I think, is the fourth where it doesn't fit. He says, Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, and then, epeta, for the sins of the people. So it's this passage is taking Christ and referring Christ to the high priest, who the high priest first makes atonement for his own sin, and then he offers for the sins of the people. So is there a big separation between when the high priest makes his and when he does something for somebody else? Is it, is it referring to after that time, sometime later? No, I don't think so. Let's look at Leviticus 16. It says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull 
for a sin offering, which is for himself. Okay, there's the high priest. He's offering a sin offering for himself. And make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before Yahweh and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil and he shall put the incense on the fire pan before Yahweh that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side also In front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. So he offers his own sacrifice and then what? Comes back some other time? No, the day of atonement, this is happening. He does his own. Then he goes and sacrifices for the people. He's made atonement for himself. He's cleansed himself. Now he goes to make atonement for the people. So, it is my position now that epeta does not have to mean a time later. Alright? So I changed my mind. The second reason I changed my mind is because all the parallel texts, none of them indicate a delay for the living. In other words, it's not like the dead get it now, the living, hang on, you get it sometime later. Alright? We don't see a delay in Matthew 24 where he comes in the clouds and the elect are gathered. Dead or raised, elect are gathered. Same time. We don't see a delay here in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You see that verse a lot on nurseries, right? <laughs> he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, for at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. No delay there. The dead are raised We are changed. Look at verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So the living here are putting on immortality, and immortality is to be in the presence of the Lord. The question here, at least in my mind, maybe it's not your question, but it's mine, why does Paul use the word epeta instead of eta here? And the answer is, I don't have a clue. <laughs> really, I mean, it's strange to me that, you know, why not just use the normal word eta? I don't know. I haven't figured it out. But since the writer of Hebrews, since Paul in other places, since James referred to use eta for a sequence, obviously it can be used that way. And also, I don't know, maybe thinking here, you know, the then, why use eta? I mean, epeta here? Maybe because he's saying, okay, those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up. All right, so the dead are raised, those living at the time, brought into the presence of the Lord. What about us? What about the second century saints? What about the third, fourth? What about all the rest of the Christians? What happens to them? Well, then after that time, when do they get taken into the presence of the Lord? That's salvation. When they trust Christ, immediately they're given eternal life. They're brought into the presence of God. Now, we're not talking about being brought into His presence physically. Okay? We don't see things that way. We are brought into His presence. We have eternal life. He dwells with us. We can commune with Him. We can talk with Him. Not like Israel. Israel was separated from God. They couldn't have that access. 
So again, I'm not really clear about this, but you know, I do really believe that it is used here of a immediate sequence. There's not something waiting, you know, to happen at some other time. All right, here's he says. Then the the alive people, those first century Thessalonian believers, are going to be caught up. This is the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch away. This is where the rapture idea comes from. All right. But certainly being caught up means something different than levitation of the physical bodies from earth to the atmosphere or the sky, I would think. Remember, this being caught up happens at the second coming. Now, harpazo could refer to the body being caught up. But it could also refer to Christians being caught up without the body. Because it's used that way by Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up. So this guy was caught up, but Paul says, I don't know if he was with his body or without his body. He goes on to say, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. God knows. But he was caught up to paradise. So he says he's caught up to heaven, he's caught up to paradise. So Paul doesn't know whether the body's involved in this snatching away, which means the body isn't necessary then in the Harpazo event, or Paul wouldn't have expressed it with his uncertainty here. So we know that Paul doesn't mean that the living Christians are going to be caught up in their living physical bodies at the second coming of Christ because it didn't happen. Christians, listen, were still around on the earth after the second coming. You say, how do you know you weren't there? I wasn't there. But (laughs) there were people who were there. And we have testimony. In his book, Before Jerusalem Fell, dating of the book of Revelation, written by Kenneth Gentry, it's a 400 and some pages strictly on the dating of the book of Revelation. Okay, so it's not your light, casual reading. It is very in-depth, all right? Because this whole purpose is to date the book of Revelation. All right, he gives evidence in this book that John was seen by Polycarp in the 90s. Some 20 years after the parousia, John is still around. So he didn't get sucked up off the planet. So Paul says that those who are alive at the second coming will be caught up together with the dead who were raised to meet the Lord in the air. Now we have to ask, what does the Bible mean when it says caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air? Does it mean that we'll be physically sucked up into the sky? Where do we go? Just higher and higher into the sky? Out into the atmosphere? What happens here? What does the word air mean here? Is it the atmosphere? Is the air we breathe, where the birds fly, where planes fly, where satellites are? Well, I think that Ephesians 2 gives us an idea of what air means. It says, In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, the word air here is another word for the heavenly or the spiritual realm. Alright, we're living in an earthly, physical realm. We see things, we relate to things physically. He is talking about a different realm, a spiritual realm. Satan was an opponent of the scheme of redemption, as we see throughout the Bible. He was the prince of the power of the air. In Romans 16.20, Paul says that Satan will shortly be crushed under their feet. Now remember audience relevance, in the first century he was to be crushed. Well, Yeshua has now taken over this sphere of the air and He is the ruler. And the saints, since the destruction of Jerusalem, they that is the same air where the saints were to meet. 
So there's no necessity for us to believe that the rapture was to be in the physical realm. And I think when he says that, you know, he is saying you are going to rise to meet the Lord in the air, he's saying that was Satan's domain, but not anymore. I'm ruling now, and the believers are going to meet in that domain, in that realm. And then he says this, he says, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. The word meet here is an interesting word. It's a pontesis. It's used only three times in the Bible, each time signifying the sending of an advanced party to meet a dignitary and then escort him back to where they came from. All right, so he's using a very specific word here. Like if a king's coming to your city, some big shot political is coming to your city, you go out to meet him, and when you meet him, you all come back to your city. So they go out to get the king, and they come back to the very same place they were. In the case of Acts 28.15, the Christians in Rome went out to meet Paul when Paul landed in Rome. They went to Appi Forum, and they escorted him back to Rome. So they went out to meet him, went back to where they were at. The other use of this word is found in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. In the parable of the ten virgins, um, in the kingdom of heaven, they says, like ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So they go out to meet him, and they go back to where they came from. That's the whole idea of this apontasis. You send a delegation out, you meet the king, you go back. So they're... They are going to meet the Lord in the air to come back to the earth and dwell with Him forever. Matthew 25.10, it says, While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with Him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. 25.13 says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. In verse 13, Christ clarifies that this will occur in the generation when He comes. The significance of this is that when Christ came in the clouds, He literally, yet spiritually, gathered those who were alive to be brought into the kingdom of Yeshua. He spiritually returned with the believers to the earth to dwell with them forever. This is a spiritual event that was visibly manifest in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the idea of being caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air is a picture of God's elect being brought into His presence in the Holy of Holies. If you remember the Old Covenant Israel, that whole, God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Nobody went near that place, except the high priest only once a year. Well, now, we dwell in the Holy of Holies with God. We are in His presence because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Now, is Paul talking about a literal rapture in this text? I don't think so. Paul believed the Lord would return in his lifetime. He preached strongly about the second coming, the resurrection, the judgment, but he never talked about a physical rapture for living Christians. It's not the physical body that is raptured. It's the Christian himself who is raptured. He is brought into the presence. And this is a first century event. The dead believers were resurrected when Christ returned. All the other living Christians at that time went into the Lord's presence. And looking at the related passages of what immediately followed the parousia, we find phrases like this, they gather the elect from the four winds. When He came, He gathered the elect together. 1 Corinthians, each in his own turn. Our text in Thessalonians says that you know we are gathered together in the clouds to meet Him in the air. And then uh, Revelation 14.30 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on because they're just going to go into His presence. 
These are all equivalent. They are all applicable for us today. The process of being snatched or caught away from death and Hades and being gathered in the presence of the Lord happened in AD 70. The rapture deals with being brought into His presence. And the idea, I think, of a physical rapture is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's just not taught there. There's no support for it. The escapist philosophy is pure fiction. We're not taught to escape reality in the Scriptures. We're taught to face it, knowing that God will work out all things together for our good if we love Him. Paul ends in verse 18. He says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Don't worry, you Thessalonians. The dead, He will bring them. And together with the living, we'll be caught up, we'll be brought into His presence. So comfort one another. Now let me ask you, are these words still a comfort for us? Well, I think they are. We're comforted by the fact that as believers, we are now in the presence of the Lord. As we trust Him, we are given eternal life, we are brought into His presence, which is eternal life, to be in His presence. And we're not waiting for anything to happen. A second coming, a rap, we're not waiting for anything. We have everything now in Christ. We're in His presence. And when we die, we will leave the physical realm and enter the heavenly or the spiritual realm. I don't know a lot about that realm. But if the Lord's there, I'm cool going there, okay? Kind of excited to be there and to see what's happening there. I wish someone could give us some information on it. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about it. It really doesn't. And I think it's because it's beyond our ability to comprehend. It's a spiritual realm where we're not bound by the physical. I can't even fathom that. I've always been bound by the physical. So I don't know what it's like to be any different. Alright, let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at this text, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd become students of the Word of God. That our desire would be to know it for the reason that would know You better, Lord. We would understand Your communication to us and we'd live in a way that brings glory to You. Thank You, Lord for Your Word. I thank You that we today dwell in Your presence, Lord. We're not waiting for anything to happen. We're enjoying You right here and right now. Amen.